Speedy ECMO episode number three. Who the hell do we start ECMO on? Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the ED ECMO podcast. My name is Dr. Joe Belezzo, and I'm here once again with my co-host, Dr. Zach Shiner. This is a podcast about ECMO, eCPR, resuscitation, and how to bring your management of the arresting patient to the next level. Hello again, Zach. Joe, good to be here. I'm glad that we have uh, Peter Gunn following us on every episode we have. <laughs> Peter Gunn. It's great. Spy Hutter. It's good stuff. All right. Today we're going to talk about indications. This is a a topic that can be a little bit boring, but you know what? It is actually tremendously important, and I think we're going to get you to kind of see some of the, the visionary concepts we have with this, and Joe in particular has just got some cool ideas for how ECMO might work in the future. So let's talk about our indicators and inclusion-exclusion criteria as we initially saw it on the first paper. Yeah, so let's just take a step back. Remember that when we were starting this project, we were under the gun to either succeed or fail. And had we started ECMO on the first five or 10 patients and had they not survived, I think we would have fallen under a lot of heat from the hospital, from other doctors, from the intensivists who are having to manage these patients. And by narrowing our inclusion criterion and uh, widening our exclusion criterion initially, that allowed us to have sort of a better success rate initially, which created a lot of positive energy towards our whole project. So Zach's going to go through right now some of the inclusion and exclusion criterion that we established early on, and then we'll describe how we modified that. So essentially what we did, there's a guy named Ken Nagao out of Japan, in my mind, a revolutionary thinker as far as he back in 1999 was putting people on the pump and cooling them before we even were talking about these big hypothermia trials. And so we adopted a lot of what he had said in his papers and the inclusion-exclusion criteria that we took were essentially what he had, which is in a patient that had cardio, uh, cardiopulmonary arrest, we excluded patients that had an initial rhythm of asystole of per- people that did not get chest compressions within 10 minutes of their arrest, of people who had a delayed EMS transport time, or had a total arrest time greater than 60 minutes, and people that had pre-arrest conditions, neurologic dysfunction, dementia, stroke, things like that, that would not allow them to have a a substantial life even if we had saved them. That was our initial inclusion-exclusion criteria. And then based on that, we published our first paper, which was a paper in resuscitation. And again, I'll put that in the show notes at edecmo.org slash three. Uh, check those out uh, for some notes and, uh, and and further information about this uh, about this episode. And I'll place that there. So yeah, so out of that, though, we started to understand that, man, a number of our saves were outside of this box. And I can't think of a more a more perfect example than Joe's save with the error day section. Well, that brings up a kind of a funny topic. When we established those uh, criterion, you know, we uh, we started the process, and the one guy who was the guy that was our support structure at our facility, the cardiothoracic surgeon uh, Walter Dembitsky, his age fell outside of our initial exclusion criterion, and he didn't like that too much. So we began to adapt and overcome, as you will. 
That's a problem, especially when Walt's out surfing, rock climbing, and traveling the world while uh, while we're sitting here at home. So, so it became clear to us that it wasn't an exact age that was important. It was an overall protoplasm, so to speak, that we were looking at. Okay, so back to Joe's case, aortic dissection. Absolute contraindication for ECPR. Joe puts him on the pump, the guy survives. So, I mean... You've got to you've got to understand the patient population. We're talking about a patient population that's already dead. You can't make them more dead than failed ACLS. And so, in that in that situation, we're now talking about a few a, a little bit of a different idea. An idea where you, as an emergency physician, and I think Joe said this very well. He said that. You make a decision on who to start chest compressions on and who to do the full coat on every day, and that's the same sort of thing that we're talking about in these patients. You're looking at a global assessment of a patient's overall health, well-being, and the possibility that they'll survive this whole um, resuscitation. So, again, you do that already where you're working right now when you're deciding whether or not to even initiate chest compressions. Uh, You just extrapolate that to the next step is how invasive do you want to be to um, in, in that patient who uh, may or may not survive. But again, Zach said it well, these patients are going to die anyway. So you, you're, you're then trying to decide whether to put them on pump in futility or, or give them a chance. And that's what we're talking about here. And Joe alluded to this a little bit already in that this is this is a process that actually has multifactorial in that when we were starting this, we were under we were under the microscope. We had to appease a number of different services. Thankfully, Walt and the cardiothoracic surgery department has been supportive of us, but we have to deal with the cardio with the cardiologists and the intensivists, and we have to we have to deal with the hospital administration. And so each of these things makes you want to ensure that your success rate is reasonable. Uh, And so, um, you know, all the things that you know of to be true, you want to think about. You want to think about pre-arrest condition. You want to think about no prolonged downtime. You want to really assess whether they got chest compressions in the field. And certainly the patients that, that are, you know, in ED arrest, those are the best types. The patients that had um, short transport times, those are great. And patients that did not stay on the scene. Now, you want to see Joe Belezzo fired up? Let's talk about this next topic, and that is, what do you think about staying on the scene, Joe? As most of you know, the dogma for pre-hospital care has led astray from a uh, load-and-go scenario to a stay-and-play, and I understand that. That comes from the notion that nowadays medics in most cities can do everything in the field that they can do, that we can do in the emergency department. They can intubate, they can give drugs, and they can give chest compressions. And those interventions all become worse or the medics do worse at when they're trying to transport a patient. As well, since traditionally you're not, the ER is not providing any added value to that resuscitation that medics can do in the field, the dogma has turned to a scenario where we are either obtaining return of spontaneous circulation in the field or we're pronouncing. And I think that if you've got a facility where you can perform ECMO, those should be specific scenarios where patients should be transported to your facility as soon as possible. Again, these patients are all going to die. The only chance they've got is by putting them on ECMO. 
So Stephen Bernard, what does he say about this? Well, my understanding, again, I haven't talked with him directly, uh, but my understanding is that they have reached an agreement with their pre-hospital community where they can have patients trans. If, if a patient is within a certain distance from their facility, uh, they will transport patients to their facility because they're now implementing ECMO early on. Uh, I don't. I know of no other facility that's been able to establish that um, relationship with their pre-hospital folks. We're in the process of doing that, but as with any big bureaucratic uh, situation, it's 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 a challenge. Now we're not we're not trying to do something cavalier. We're not trying to change the whole makeup of of the U.S. We just want us to rethink this idea that stay and play is the right thing to do. Sometimes stay and play might be the right thing to do. But sometimes it might not be. And certainly in the case of ECMO, if you have that possibility in the ER, it just changes it. It's a game changer. And so we'll have to reassess. We'll have to get some studies done. We'll have to do, um, do some uh, multi-site um, trials to look at this to say maybe it is better to still stay in play. But our gestalt is that in a number of those, these patients – the best thing for them would have been to just load and go. We have stroke centers. We have cardiac cath centers. Let's envision a scenario where we've got a resuscitation center. So if a patient is within a given distance, let's just say a 10-minute perceived drive time. That's just a random number I'm throwing out there. But if they're within a given distance of a resuscitation facility, basically an ED that can do ECMO, then those patients should be a load and go scenario. And everybody else, unfortunately, becomes a stay and play. Okay, final thing here. Now, this is real visionary. What about the idea of actually going to the scene and putting someone on ECMO? So if we are trying to decrease that time, decrease that time of of low perfusion or no perfusion, what if we actually sent physicians to the scene and put them on ECMO? Again, so this is going to be fraught with some logistic issues. Uh, you know, movement of the machine itself, who's bringing the catheters, uh, the circuits and whatnot, and then the challenge of with or without ultrasound guidance in terms of accessing femoral vessels. Uh, The scenario, the only scenario that I see as being truly a functional one would be to have at a so-called resuscitation facility, have an on-call team of doctors, and we I have a group of doctors lined up to do this right now, have an on-call team of doctors willing to be on-call for a patient to arrest within a given distance from our hospital. Medics are simultaneously called to the scene with the particular doctor that's on-call if a patient meets very strict guidelines, very strict inclusion and exclusion criterion. If the patient meets those criterion, then what if that doctor went to the scene from the hospital, met the ambulance at the scene? Medics would do nothing different than they're already doing. They'll intubate, start drugs, do chest compressions, and then that physician could make the determination as to whether that is an appropriate ECMO case. And if it is, initiate ECMO on the scene and then load that patient back into the ambulance using a mobile, a highly mobile ECMO machine. There's a couple of them out there, uh, and we take no money from anybody, but the the machine that's out there that seems to be currently the most mobile and most applicable might be the McKay Cardio Help, which is about the size of a transport monitor, and the initiation or cannulation is in no way different. It's also a machine that you can prime in advance and have ready to go and can be loaded into a vehicle along with some cannulas and brought to the scene. 
Again, the doctor could put a patient on bypass, load that patient with the highly mobile ECMO machine onto the ambulance and transport that patient back to our facility. Now, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a, uh, a fantasy land for me right now, but I don't see that as a complete and total reach from what could possibly be done in the future. So Joe had been talking about this for a number of years. I mean, this was just, this is great stuff. He was envisioning it and, uh, and I thought it was a cool idea. And then we met this guy named Jim Manning and we're going to go meet with Jim in a couple of weeks out in North Carolina. And we heard about him in the past actually going out into the field and putting arterial cannulas in and doing uh, low dose epinephrine. And all of a sudden this seemed like not so pie in the sky. Maybe this is actually feasible. So, um, so really cool stuff. I do want to emphasize one point that Joe just made, and I think given that this is our third uh, run at this, maybe we can just make this very clear to people, and that is that Joe and I do not have financial disclosures. We are not associated with any of these companies. We are not um, making money from McKay or any of the ECMO uh, products. Uh, We are here to try and provide some education, so I hope you're aware of that. Joe, do you think you can sum up what we just talked about? Yeah, I can do that briefly. So first of all, the placement, the, the decision as to whether to start the patient on ECMO has a lot to do with their global assessment of their protoplasm, not their exact age. Although I would ca- I would caveat that with uh, the fact that an arrest is witnessed and questionably whether or not the initial rhythm should be either PEA or VFib, as it's very unlikely that an asystolic patient as their initial rhythm would survive. But again, we don't know. Next, TOR, termination of resuscitation. I hate that concept. I understand where it comes from, uh, but maybe there should be exceptions for patients, for, for, for facilities that have the ability to do what we can do. And maybe we should start a resuscitation model, a resuscitative, um, a, a resuscitation facility model to, uh, to expedite that. And then finally, the question is raised as to whether or not there's a future, a true future for pre-hospital ECMO. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of the ED ECMO podcast. Uh, please leave feedback, uh, suggestions uh, at edecmo.org slash three. Uh, send us an email, Joe, Zach, or Scott at edecmo.org. Uh, follow us on Facebook, edecmo.com. Follow us on Twitter at edecmo or f- check out our Google page, Google Plus at edecmo. Uh, call, leave us a voicemail. We'll be sure to try and include that into a future podcast. Call us at 470 470- Three 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 two six six one. That is four seven zero edecmo one. Again, I thank you for uh, following us and uh, checking us out. Uh, on behalf of Dr. Zach Shiner and Scott Weingart, I am Joe Belezzo, and we are signing out. You can do it. I can't say you can do it. That sounds like... You can do it!